0: You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this happens to be Military Appreciation Week. As we salute our armed forces, our attention turns to a top-ranking woman in the U.S. Army who just recently retired. Major General Suzanne Veras-Lum hails from Wahewa, O'ahu. She's of Japanese and Native Hawaiian ancestry. We talk diversity and inclusivity in our military forces. Verislam feels fortunate to have begun and ended her military career here on her home island, but she's not done yet.
1: After 34 years and five and a half years, the past five and a half years, being at Indo-Pacific Command, which you may be familiar with, is the largest and oldest combatant command. And it, you know, headquarters right here on Oahu at Camp Smith. So I've worked there with a lot of different issues With the plans and policy, you know, we've worked with 36 nations, 14 time zones, key challenges in the region, you know, with China, Russia, DPRK, as well as violent extremism and more natural disasters occurring in this region than any other place in the world. And I've also, the second half of that five and a half years, I've worked as Admiral Davidson's mobilization assistant, where he actually had me as the key point of contact for all things Hawaii, whether it was working to help collaborate, um, move forward some of the initiatives like the Homeland Defense Radar Hawaii, working with Pacific Fleet and the the state and the county on Red Hill, the land lease renewals, issues regarding military personnel, COVID-19 as we were maneuvering through this space of the pandemic together, as well as other areas on the Pacific homeland, we call it, including Guam and CNMI, where America's Day begins. So working with Governor Leon Guerrero there, as well as Governor Torres in the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana. So because those have been the areas that I've worked on for quite a while, for several years now, I realize that there's so much more to do, you know. And of course, my successor, Major General Mark Hashimoto, is going to do a fabulous job. But this is a huge lift, and I want to be able to help move some of these collaborative efforts forward, and I think I can do that. So as a result, I've established... Varislam Indo-Pacific Consulting LLC, which is consulting, advising, and education on Indo-Pacific issues. I think there's a lot for folks to learn, and a lot of things that we need to sustain, and some things that we need to fix. And I think, based on the experience of the past five and a half years, I I think I have something to offer in that area, and I want to keep doing it.
0: Well, share with our listeners. I mean, did. Did you come from a military family? You know, how did you decide to go down this path?
1: You know, I do. My father served 40 years in all three components. So he started active duty, then he went to the reserve and the National Guard. So we call components of the Army the active duty, guard, and reserve, all under the Army. So, and he's a Vietnam veteran. He hails from Maui, but spent, you know, he came to Oahu after he got out of the active Army after his service in Vietnam. And all of my uncles served. My sister is retired Air Force and I'm Master Sergeant. And my, my great uncles, most of them served during World War II. So, yes, I do come from a family of service, and it was around us. But, you know, they were all mostly male figures. So being, uh, it's interesting that both my sister and I, my older sister, decided to choose the military service. As I've told people before... Seeing my dad's example and also having a the influence and some of those influences are a variety. But one was, you know, when growing up in Waikua, we only had three channels, actually four, two, three and a half, and you used the uh, rabbit ears to catch the station. My dad sort of dominated that and and would turn on the 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 TV to whatever kind of show he wanted to watch, and oftentimes it it was war movies, and it's not because it was. Um, you know, fascination with the horrors of war because we never want war, but it was a reminder of the the things that people are willing to do and sacrifice for something greater and something bigger than themselves. And that's something I wanted to be a part of. I cannot fully explain it, but it was certainly something um, that always attracted me, that kind of creed, that uh, group of people coming together For something bigger themselves and as you know today less than one percent of our United States population serve in our military and I hope that over time more people would have an opportunity to serve in different ways to to make our nation stronger
0: you've achieved this rank of of major general and I you know think of other female role models Coast Guard Admiral uh, Carrie Thomas was out here in the Pacific when you see the caliber of talent and just smart women out there Yes, and uh, Lori Robinson was the first female combatant commander. She
1: was the commander of NORTHCOM, but before that, she was the Pacific Air Force's commander, first female to take on that role and not a pilot. So pretty amazing. She is extraordinary and, and actually wrote, most recently spoke at the Pacific Air Force's Women, Peace, and Securi- Security Symposium. And that's another area I'm interested in is Women, Peace, and Security. So I was kind of the lead at indo to help spearhead some of the women peace and security initiatives, which really are related to the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which is providing opportunities for women—that women that those countries and those organizations in which women have equal participation and access to just basic things like education and and a seat at the table, a voice in governance—and and in the security realm, those those nations and organizations are much more stable and successful, and. So, you know, been promoting that piece of it in our, our military and army alone. We have about 16% are, are women, and about a little less than 10% of all components of the army are general officers. So, we have come a long way, but we've got more to go. Uh, and and I, I'm proud that there are a lot of initiatives right now for inclusivity and diversity in the armed forces. And that has been a topic of conversation, international conversation, so that's great.
0: And you got your start in uh, Junior ROTC here at the University of Hawaii, right? Yes, and that's Senior ROTC. Junior ROTC is in our high schools, but um, the,
1: I started at University of Hawaii with commission from the University of Hawaii program, and I'm proud of our, our program. It has um, really, I think, helped me. I still participate in a lot of their activities, and it's just so wonderful to see these young men and women wanting to serve, and working really hard. And they're doing uh, much more creative things than we ever did and really honoring those who came before them. I'm proud of our UH.
0: And if there's anything you want to say to women out there who might be considering a, a career in the military, I don't know, what would you tell them as you look back on your career?
1: I am so grateful for the many opportunities to do things that I never thought I could do, to challenge myself and I must say that all of my bosses in uniform have been men. They didn't look like me. And I've I've mentioned this before, and I I saw it on an interview with a senior leader who said ducks pick ducks. That's why we need to make sure. But, you know, those ducks didn't look like me. At least the feathers didn't. And I like to say that we're looking at the heart of the ducks. Then maybe they picked me. We picked each other. because we had same values of service, same values of integrity and honor, and all those things that that make up a a strong force. But I think I would say that now there are so many opportunities than there were in the past, and I'm grateful for the pioneers who kind of paved the way for us to be here after World War II. You know, the diversity of of opportunities like space and cyberspace and intelligence and even now infantry. As of 2015, all jobs are open to women. So that means combat arms. We we've have over 50 women who have graduated from the U.S. Army Ranger School. We have one special forces from the graduates. So if you can meet the standards, you can do it. So if this is something that is inside of you, you want to do it, you want to serve there are so many opportunities to do it now.
0: As you look back on your career, I mean, I don't know, is there anything that you would have done differently or? I certainly would have
1: earlier on thought out mentorship. And I'm grateful for that it, mentorship happened naturally. But I think an intentional piece or intentional seeking out of mentors to help me through the process and and those mentors don't necessarily always have to look like you, and many times it was they weren't. And I'm grateful for those mentors. So I'm part of a Pan Pacific American Leaders and Mentors chapter, Hawaii chapter, that helps to, you know, help Asia Pacific Islanders in in the mentorship area, especially coming from Hawaii. We have similar culture and background, and and sometimes we might not um, vocalize or or feel like we, we can reach out to others to help us to navigate this new terrain of the military life. And there are a lot of people out there who want to help. So I would have done that earlier. So I'm grateful to be a part of this program to help educate younger uh, people who are from the Asia Pacific region to seek out that mentorship.
0: Do you think as a woman you had to work harder?
1: I think I felt... You know, I felt I, I put those on my mind because I was keenly aware of the fact that most of the time I'd walk in a room and I was the only female and keenly aware when there were other women, I knew they felt the same way. And and, and not surprisingly, of course, they would say, yes, that's how I feel. I feel exactly the same way. I, I, I felt I put on myself that it had to be excellent. So as a result, if I failed, I would feel like I would be harder on myself that it has to be perfect. But I'm so grateful for one of the colonels that I worked for early on when I was lieutenant said to me, if you never fail, that means you've done absolutely nothing here. So to me, that was so refreshing to hear a senior combat arms male officer tell me it's okay to fail because that's how you learn. You get refined by fire so that you won't be able to, afraid to take risk. Because if if that if we let that fear dominate us that we've got to be perfect all the time, then we won't try anything new, and there's there goes innovation, there goes experimentation, and there goes new ideas.
0: You often hear the phrase, you know, the brotherhood, the bond uh, that uh, soldiers have. Uh, I don't know, is there a sisterhood, since there are fewer women in the military, in the armed forces? You know, I think there is a brother and sisterhood. You know, a lot of my friends, and
1: most of them are male friends that I have in the military, and whether they're men or women, I think we're we're connected by the unit, the mission, the the hard times together. It seems to be more of the group of people, whether men or women, that you're you're together with, and you have undergone significant challenges or loss together. That always remains, and you don't even have to say anything. You can just look at each other, and you know, you know what they've experienced, whether man or woman. And I think that's the unique nature of being in the armed forces and I think the, our military has kind of been a bit in, in the forefront of integration whether it was racial integration integration of women ahead in non-traditional roles ahead of I think the United States in general
0: it's more of that shared shared experience then I guess yeah huh? do you have kids did you have to balance I do yeah how did I you do. balance that I have uh,
1: older daughter who's going to graduate from uc santa barbara diana and uh, a younger daughter's going to graduate from callao high school i'm so grateful for them i'm so grateful for our military families because oftentimes they have to do without a mom or dad being home and be able to fend for themselves and be independent and i know that right now while they're not interested in the military who knows what the next phase of their life may hold.
0: uh the possibilities for young women out there that was retired Major General Suzanne varis who we salute for her service in the Army and as a role model for other young women as we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Military Appreciation Week. varis now embarks on a new chapter looking for opportunities to encourage mentorship and to focus on women, peace, and security. Uh-huh.
2: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Sunday, May 23rd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. You tune to HPR for local
3: reporting that's relevant, reliable, and fact-checked. All qualities that help set the station apart and earn recognition from industry leaders. Congratulations to HBR's news team for winning three regional Edward R. Murrow Awards in the categories of News Series, Investigative Reporting, and Excellence in Sound. To learn more and to listen to the winning stories, head to our website,
2: hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island style lunch at the open air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at Honolulumuseum.org.
0: It was three years ago today that Navy Officer Brian Buggy died in a diving accident off Kiwalo Basin. We first talked to his widow, Ashley Buggy, following his death about his decision to be an organ donor. Now we've learned that one of the recipients of Brian's tissue flew to Hawaii last night from Nebraska to mark this anniversary. Alyssa Evans is a competitive marathoner and ICU nurse who got certified for the special dive. She and Ashley were to meet for the first time this morning, and at this hour, they're believed to be headed out for a dive at Kiwalo's. They were connected thanks to the Legacy of Life, Hawaii's United with Hope program. Here's Ashley.
4: This is a big circular event for me, so highly emotional, but I don't think in a traditional meeting the organ donor recipient way if there is such a thing. For me, this is two years worth of becoming friends with Alyssa. You know, I got her initial letter just before I flew to Hawaii for the one-year anniversary. And so we've been communicating for two years now. And so I am meeting the organ donor recipient of my husband. But I'm also meeting a friend now that I've built this relationship with over two years. And Alyssa and I were texting last night just talking about how mind-blowing all of this is to now meet in Hawaii and to be able to dive to Brian's physical remains together when he is literally inside of Alyssa. Like, there's just so much to wrap your head around here, and it's just the most incredible story and feeling, and this is something that Alyssa and I will carry with us for the rest of our lives. It's typically hard to pinpoint moments that you know are going to bring you along, you know, in the hard times, the good times, for the rest of your lives, and this is certainly one of them for me.
0: And Alyssa, what's it been like for you connecting uh, with your
5: friend? Like she said, it's a little different uh, perspective on my end. When I blew out my knee, I'm a very avid runner, and it was kind of very detrimental to me at that time. I wanted to connect with the donor family, and I had no idea that this was going to transpire into this kind of friendship. And, um, oh, gosh, I'm just truly amazed. I feel so grateful and honored to be the one to have received this from this wonderful family. I can't even explain. It could have been anybody that donated, but I'm so grateful that I have this connection with Ashley now and I get to meet her and her family. I honestly feel a huge connection with her already, even though we've never met in person. There's just something stronger and more powerful than we are that brought us together. I truly believe that. So I'm a, a nurse, and I work in the intensive care unit, and I actually just graduated with my nurse practitioner degree. But I've been on the side where I've seen families donate and go through that decision. I have sent people to the OR to be able to provide these things to other in-need patients. And so I, I wanted to reach out because I know how difficult it can be for that family to make that decision. And that's why I felt as soon as I got home from my surgery, as I, me and my kids wrote a letter to Ashley because I just wanted to give her my condolences and, and thank her for making that difficult decision. So I think that's why it was so bitterly special to me. I don't know how many marathons have you
0: run. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you, you're a competitive runner, so.
5: I have done, I've done Ryan Boston twice. This was before my injury. I've probably ran 15 to 18 half marathons. I'm also into mountain climbing. I and mean, I know Brian was, also into all these, all the above, I'm just a very active person. With my grad school, I haven't been able to run a full marathon since. It took a big, strong year to recover from my surgery. And I remember Dr. Arnold from Omaha. He gave me the option of using my own tissue to repair my ACL or doing this Achilles tendon donor. And he said, with a donor, it's going to take longer to recover because it's not your own tissue. But in the long run, it's going to be stronger than any other ligament that you have ever had in your knee and i opted to go that route because i knew i wanted longevity and so that's why i decided to do the achilles tendon donor and which happened to be Brian.
0: wow i mean i just got chicken skin thinking about that (laughs) you know i I remember when i ran my first marathon i I hobbled over with a knee injury and then i've had an achilles uh, issue as well and so i totally am with you you know uh, just to be fit and you know ashley when you see how much she loves to get out there and be active and Mm -hmm. and knowing that your husband shared that.
4: It's very special. It's like, honestly, it's just kind of surreal to wrap your head around all of this stuff. And, you know, Brian's not physically here anymore, but a part of his body is still out there on these adventures. He's still promoting this lifestyle of adventure and exploration and doing really beautiful and amazing and exciting things, even though he's not physically here. And it's That's really special to me that that was such a part of his life and his love of life. And so in this weird way, he still gets to do those things and still help (laughs) other people to do these things. And for me, there was never a question of if I was going to be an organ donor. There was never a question of if he was going to be an organ donor. It was always like, well, we're not going to be here anymore. We don't need those body parts anymore. They really could go to help someone. But it was never an actual thought in either of our heads that we would die and that this would actually be a thing that we would have to go through. And when I first talked to you, I think I talked a little bit about how hard that phone call really was with the organ donation center on the day that he died. It was was terribly tragic. You know, you're talking about donating parts of your spouse, the person you loved the most in the world that was just there with you that very morning. And now you have to picture and think about them being dispersed to people that you don't know when you just want them to be a part of you. But now, three years later, just seeing how powerful that single phone call was, not only for Alyssa as the recipient, but for my family, for myself, for my kids. Not only have we witnessed how incredible this technology is that we can do this, but now we have this incredible family that's a part of ours that's now out there talking about how amazing our loved one was she didn't even know him but she knows how incredible he was and how selfless this gift was and how it's changed her life and that means it's changed her kids lives and their families' lives and so as hard as that phone call is and will be for people who are going to have to go through this i cannot state just how important organ donation is and how many lives it touches not just the single recipient but just the huge umbrella of people around him and using mine and Alyssa's story as an example it's a new friend and family member for me and now we're out on this grand adventure together (laughs) in Hawaii diving (laughs) and just when I say it's hard to wrap my head around there's just so many faucets here of of incredible things that have happened because of this single tragedy
0: well you found the strength that day and now Alyssa has this strengthened tendon, you know, yeah. your, your new bionic <laughs> friend. And, you know, Alyssa, I mean, you are you got certified
5: specifically for this dive today. Yes, I did. And that's one thing that I think regardless of what as who the donor family would have been, I'm never going to take any gift for granted. But I did go through a really hard time, as Ashley did, after the death of Brian and me with my ACL. I, I had a period of depression. Just in a split second, your entire life has changed. Not in the degree of, of Ashley's, but my goals and dreams were like just shattered in, my, in front of my eyes. I just had this feeling that my entire life was going to change. But when I received this gift and when I started to get to know Ashley and who Brian was and is, it gave me the fight within myself to push through and get through this and, and, and honor the gift that I received from Ashley and Brian to continue to reach my goals and to run and to climb and even last year we couldn't be here in May um, during the second year anniversary but I I went and I ran and ran and ran until I could not run anymore because I wanted to honor the gift that I received and I would never I will never take it for granted ever
0: you know Ashley Brian's memories you know are just so strong today
4: yeah, starting Mother's Day, Mother's Day is pretty hard for me, and that's a week before he passes away. So Mother's Day to this day, and then all my kids' birthdays are right after this. So this is a pretty hard time of the year for me. But, you know, every year since he's died, I've put together a memorial dive. In the past two years, I've opened it up virtually, so worldwide people that either knew Brian or have since learned about him through either my books or the documentary – I've invited them to all participate in just a day of adventure. And last year, you know, we were kind of in the heart of COVID lockdown worldwide. And so a lot of people, just like Alyssa, went out and they just did something adventurous. And in the name of Brian, just like going out and giving it your all and living this life with no bucket list. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So just go live today and do something amazing. And That's what I want this day to be. I mean, really every day, but specifically this day. For me, it's diving, but for everyone else out there, just get out and and do something. And I want to just continue pushing this idea of this is our one life to live. You can watch TV some other time. Like, get outside (laughs) and and just do something. Go for a walk or a hike or learn to scuba dive like Alyssa did. Life is just so short, and so moments like these... They don't happen if you just stay home. You really have to push the boundaries. And so, yeah, this is a very emotional day for myself, for my kids. My kids are up in the hotel room right now talking about their dad We all feel the weight and the heaviness of today. Leading up actually in the next few minutes here is the time of the day that he passed away. And so that's, that's very heavy on my heart right now, meeting with Alyssa. It'll be an emotional dive. But then we'll spend the rest of the day celebrating because there's so much to celebrate, too.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing this story of a gift of life, a gift of hope. And yeah. you will have a special day on the water today. Thank you so much.
4: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: That was Ashley Buggy and Alyse, Alyssa Evans, who are marking the third anniversary of the death of Navy Officer Brian Buggy. He donated his body, organs, and tissue to help others live life to the fullest. The memorial dive is happening as we speak. You can head to our Facebook page to get the links to Buggy's Facebook page and to Legacy of Life Hawaii.
6: The sound of the ocean soothes my restless soul. sound of the ocean rocks me all night long.
0: reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at help for families with young children. Reporter Anita Hofschneider is on the line. Good morning, Anita. Good
7: morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, so this is a feel-good story, isn't it?
7: Yes, this is good news for families in Hawaii who have, you know, children under the age of of 18 um, and will benefit from this expanded federal child tax credit.
0: So what makes this different from, you know, what we've seen before?
7: So this is actually a really key part of President Biden's domestic agenda. And what he did is he took an existing uh, child tax credit. And of course, Congress did this as well. He took an existing child tax credit and expanded it. Um, they increased the uh, value by at least 50 percent, uh, depending on the age of the child. And they also made it refundable. Which means it will apply to a lot more families, including very, very low-income families who maybe didn't receive an income last year um, and normally wouldn't be eligible for this because they didn't owe any taxes.
0: So, like, how many children are we talking about?
7: So it's going to help 278,000 children in Hawaii, and that includes 92,000 more children that were already being helped by the existing tax credit.
0: Wow, okay, so this will really go a long way to helping those in uh, who are, I guess, whose need is really great.
7: And yes, and it's not just, you know, this is a, a federal policy, of course, and so it's helping uh, children in every state. But in Hawaii, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, as you know, we have such a high cost of living here. Child care costs are really high. So on, uh, when I was talking to advocates for this uh, p- policy yesterday, they were pointing out that, on one hand this is really needed because families here could really benefit from this extra cash and um, one good thing about it is that there's no strings attached i mean of course some people don't like this policy so i'm saying good in terms of the advocates um you know perspective but they, you know families are able to um use the money on whatever they feel like they need for example their like, clothing for kids or, or food or whatnot um and in addition to that um on, on the flip side Hawaii's is is so expensive, but the money won't necessarily go as far here as it might in other states where, um, you know, child care will be a lot cheaper. So $300 a month could cover half of child care. You know, in Hawaii, that would just be a, a small fraction of child
0: care costs. And so I guess the idea then that this will help a lot of those households who were maybe hard hit by COVID during this time.
7: Exactly. And it's also going to be an economic infusion. Um, and I talked to the state economist, and he estimated it could bring an extra $150 million into Hawaii's economy in terms of, you know, spending money for these families. And for people who um, haven't yet had a chance to read the story, so what it is is, is an extra monthly payment starting in July through December. Um, you will get $250 per child between the ages of six and 17 if you're below a certain income threshold. Uh, or $300 per child younger than six years old. So if you have multiple children, you could be getting multiple payments um, every month and also be able to receive the other half of this uh, next year um, when you file taxes next year. Oh, and that's another key part of this is that it's really important advocates say that you file taxes in order to take advantage of this. Some, some people who lost their jobs last year they might think that they don't owe any taxes so they don't need to file. But if you want to be able to take advantage of this you need to be able to file.
0: Okay. And, uh, you know, again, this is uh, something that if folks think that uh, they could be eligible, they just need to reach out and find out more about this.
7: Exactly. And it also, um, I heard, um, applies to mixed status families. So even if one parent is undocumented, for example, if a, um, a child does have a Social Security number, then they could still be eligible for this payment.
0: Okay. All right. Good to know. But thanks so much, Anita.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's reality check to uh, read her full story visit civilbeat.org You are back with the conversation. And, you know, school's just about out. Summer's just around the corner. And we hear about how summer enrichment programs are about to kick off. HBR's Noe Tanigawa is here to tell us what's happening in Chinatown. Hi, Noe.
8: Hi. You know, it's kind of cool, Catherine, that the Hawaii Arts Alliance is starting up this traditional arts program with perfect timing for this first summer session here. You know, I thought it was cool because we've got Performing Arts of the Philippines kicking off here. And I heard so much about the two instructors, Desiree and Raylan Quintero. So this is going to, these traditional arts programs are for kids. So it's, they're going to be meeting once a week and learning cleaning, you know, and playing music with gongs and stuff. And over the COVID, a lot of people notice if they have a kid who just won't stop drawing, there's drawing and painting going to be offered there too. And there's even clay on Saturdays. But there's something called ragtime rubbish for middle schoolers. And this ethnomusicologist is going to teach how to make music instruments out of, you know, recycled things like a boba straw. You can make a flute and stuff. So, (laughs) I mean, all of these are for kids, but these offerings are going to expand. And, you know, Terry Skillman, she's the CEO of the Hawaii Arts Alliance. She's saying that the whole idea is to... Provide what it is that people want. You can pitch what it is that you want, in fact.
3: Suggestions would always be appreciated, especially looking for communities to say, we want to be represented. Here's what we can offer. Here's our master teachers that we would like to have teaching this. You know, Pitch it to the Arts Alliance, because the traditional arts program is something that we're sponsoring. There's masters in our community, too, that mm-hmm. are... Underutilized. There's so much that I know is still out there, and some of these practitioners or masters are kupuna. That if we don't offer spaces for them to teach and help continue these traditions, then we're going to lose them.
8: I mean, it's really something to think about knowledge that we might be losing, like how to make a throw net. I mean, what would you want to learn?
0: Oh, I don't know. You know, I happened to see a a really cool exhibit where people made things out of recycled discards, right? They just recycled into Uh fabulous art. And so I would kind (laughs) of like to see, you know, uh, classes like that.
8: That would be fun to sit down, you know, with some materials and a glue gun and see what you can make and then take home and enjoy. That would be really fun. And those are the kind of classes that these people are trying to get together, downtown Arts Center. And, you know, someone texted me just a few minutes ago saying that Bachelor of Fine Arts show is there now. You know, UH Manoa Gallery is not in business yet. And so they had a GoFundMe page and got in there at the Downtown Arts Center, which is where these art classes are going to be happening. You know, it's there on Hotel Street, that big pink building uh, between Bethel and Nu'uanu. So the BFA show, I I was just looking at some pictures. It looks really fun, too. Have you been out in
0: that area? I have not visited, so I'm looking forward to it because I've heard from artists what a marvelous space it is. Yeah,
8: you know, a lot of people have hesitations, and one thing I gotta say is that the downtown people, director of housing, Anton Krocki, was saying that they are planning improvements to the parking lot in that very building. But you know, when I go down, it's usually during the day, and I always park in that lot off of Beritania. You know what I mean? It's just past New on Bertha, and you just drive down. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to. It's super clean. They close early, like ten o'clock, but it's so easy to come out of there and just pop right onto New Wanu. And you know, last week Mayor Blangiardi dropped down to the uh, downtown arts center, and I was asking Terry Skillman um, what she made of his visit, and she was saying, you know, I wish there was a city plan that I could like plug into. And I guess, you know, that's that's still in formulation. Carrie went on to say that, especially looking at the problems in Chinatown, she really doesn't think government can do everything down there. I mean, it's really been a long time, right, Catherine? What is your impression of the area?
0: Yeah, and I know with the addition of this gallery space and classroom space that, you know, it is an opportunity to showcase and, and bring together the artists, you know, the arts community. But what a great opportunity that they're they're using it then for summer classes for our uh, youngsters. Oh, yeah.
8: It's the way to get everybody in there, you know. And um, I was saying, you can use that courtyard that's down in the front right on Hotel Street across Sunetsen Park. And um, Carrie said, well, you know what? We're going to have a gamelan orchestra moving in here, and so we'll be able to have some Balinese culture classes in the second floor, and it's in a room, a large room, where they can open the windows. Can you imagine a serial gamelan sound coming out over in the Uwanu? I mean, that that would just be really crazy.
0: Yeah, it would be really interesting. You know, and as far as the, the fees for these classes, I don't know, are they giving out any scholarships?
8: Oh, What so, do we need to know? You know, I have not heard about scholarships, but that's one of the best things about these classes. Catherine, so glad you asked. Six-week session, one-hour class per week, $60 per class. For most of them, the ceramics class is a little more. It's 120 because all materials will be provided. And again, they're at the Downtown Arts Center.
0: All right. Okay. So folks want to sign their children up for these classes. You can just uh, head to the website and find exactly. out more. All right. Hawaii
8: Arts Alliance. <laughs> just look for traditional arts programs.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Noe Tanigawa. To find out more about these programs, head to our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
2: Coming Saturday, May 29th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with slack key guitarist Jeff Peterson. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. This members only show is online, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org.
0: Today we mark the 62nd birthday of the late great Israel Kamaka Viva Ole, better known to many of us as Brada is. The legendary Hawaiian singer and musician was born in 1959 and left an indelible mark on fans and the Hawaiian music industry. While nearly all of his songs are treasured by the people of Hawaii, it was one in particular that brought him worldwide recognition.
6: Somewhere over the rainbow bluebirds
0: that song somewhere over the rainbow what a wonderful world is a medley of the judy garland and louis armstrong classics but still distinctly is it has been used in popular commercials movies and this year had the distinction of being added to the library of congress national recording registry The Conversations of Russell Subiano set out to understand the meaning of this honor
9: and the story behind the iconic melody. There are over 170 million items in the Library of Congress's collection, everything from books to films to music from across the U.S. and around the world, representing various sections of people, places, and cultures. It's one of the world's largest libraries, Yet still manages to be one of the most exclusive destinations for works worthy of preservation. Why are these items selected for inclusion, and how are they chosen? I called up the library's recorded sound curator, Matthew Barton, to find out.
10: The recording registry has been an ongoing effort, close to 20 years now, to assemble you know 25 recordings at a time annually. You know not. Not simply a Hall of Fame, you know, but a, a body of recordings, a continually growing body of recordings that, you know, represent not simply, you know, great moments, but great moments that really speak to us in music, but also in poetry and speeches and broadcasts. And, and all kinds of things If you go through the, the list You'll see that in addition to All these musical performances You know, there are you know, radio, radio broadcasts You know, uh, great moments in, in sports That were captured on the radio Recordings of, of nature And, you know, they, they all You know, reflect Well, in many ways, not just in some way, but in many ways on, you know, an American experience. And that's true for, you know, something like, you know, Is Is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which has now been heard by, you know, countless millions of people, as as it is for, you know, recordings that are still, you know, very obscure and that they haven't been heard by a lot of people. But, you know, they're nonetheless very significant. And so we try to, what I'm getting at is that, you know, the when we when these lists are released each year something to consider is, is that you know the the famous recordings are on that are on there to look at both sides of it you know to 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 think of the recordings on there that you might not have heard of or ever heard as on the same level as the ones that are known to millions
9: i think when we look at the list of those recently inducted with is i know some of them that stand out to me are Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814 album. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Cliff's The Harder They Come soundtrack. Yep. And then, interesting enough, speaking to what you've said, Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 Christmas Address with Winston Churchill.
10: How can we meet and worship with love and with uplifted spirit? heart in a world at war a world of fighting and suffering and death
9: and also some of the earliest recordings of an American voice by Thomas Edison shortly after he invented his recording machine I can see that it kind of spans a lot of different types of recordings not just music Mm -hmm. and not just going uh, all
10: the way back yeah
9: yeah yeah, and right and not just modern time but going as far back as as there are recordings how does the selection process work is there a conscious effort to be as diverse in in terms of time period and type of recording
10: yeah absolutely absolutely you know they, they go it goes through several stages there's the national recording preservation board and Anybody can, you know, make a suggestion, a nomination online at the library's website. It goes through several you know, stages, and you know, we're always, you know, looking back and, and saying, okay, you know, what what's not here yet? You know, who's who's not here? And if you get to if you get to a, a certain stage with it, but all the recordings are from you know the same 25 or 30 year period, and it's like, okay, we're <laughs> you know, something's wrong here. we gotta, yeah. we got to open this up. So that that is always a consideration, yeah.
9: Hawaii's location in the Pacific Ocean often makes it difficult for many of our local artists to find mainstream success in other parts of the world. But while the average consumer may not be familiar with some of our island music legends, Barton says the Library of Congress has been adding numerous recordings from Hawaii musicians for decades.
10: In addition okay. to having the largest collection of books, we have the largest collection of recordings. Okay, and a- absolutely, Hawaiian musicians are are, are represented. I'm not going to say we have every single one, mm-hmm. but there's been a lot more uh, Hawaiian recording than uh, you know a-, a lot of mainlanders may realize. But we've got a you know strong collection of Hawaiian recordings. But you know, by by no means is it complete. I think you know you you went back, you know. You know, you would find on our shelves, you know, you know great artists like, you know, Gabby Pahanui, mm-hmm. for instance.
6: <laughs>
10: well, he's actually, he's on the registry now. But, you know, other uh, Hawaiian artists really going back to, you know, v- very early times, you know, early 1900s.
9: Those who know is who are familiar with his music and his engaging personality, who understand his legacy and his status among Hawaii musicians, they won't be surprised that his music was selected for preservation. But I was still curious, why this particular song? What was it that captured the attention of the nation's library?
10: Well, that you know that one is so widely known. But that's you know that that alone is not enough. You know, there have been lots of songs that have been big hits. But you know the first and for many people perhaps still the only song by is that they've they've ever heard, but it had a huge impact on the mainland. So it was, I guess a recent instance of the way that Hawaiian music has reached the mainland. You know, Gabby Bahanui and, and Saul Huopi were two artists who uh, did that in, in earlier times. So it was really you know, kind of added to the, you know, the national soundtrack, I guess would be a way to put it. And I think in addition to it just being such a wonderful performance, I think it, it, it's a good addition in that the, uh, the other recordings you know, represent the two great guitar traditions of Hawaii, slap key right. and right. steel guitar and you know it is, is is representing the the great vocal traditions of Hawaii and also the uh, ukulele.
9: Yeah, exactly. It's not just a showcase for voices and lyrics but also some of the instruments that are either indigenous here or associated widely with our culture.
10: Yeah, those are all those are all considerations, yeah.
9: All iconic works of art have an origin story. While some result from days and years of hard work and attempts at perfection, this one is different. In 2011, NPR's Rene Montaigne produced an episode for NPR's 50 Great Voices series, featuring Is, and the night he recorded Somewhere Over the Rainbow.
3: In 1988, on his own, Israel Kamaka Viva Ole recorded a song that made him a legend. It began at 3 in the morning. Milan Bertosa was at the end of a long day in his Honolulu recording studio.
2: And the phone rings, and there's a client of mine. He said, I've got, I've got Israel here. He said, well, he wants to come and record a demo. Well, shutting down, come back tomorrow. He said, no, no, here, talk to Israel. So he puts Israel on the phone, and he's this really sweet man. He's well-mannered, and just kind, and, you know, please can I come in? I got this idea.
3: At that, Bertosa relented and gave Israel 15 minutes to get there soon there was a knock on the door
2: and in walks like the largest human being i had seen in my life i put up some microphones do a quick sound check roll tape and the first thing he does is summer over the rainbow
3: meaning he just took his ukulele and started singing
2: he played and sang and one take and it was over the next day i got his real copy and filed the tape away
3: it would be five years before that tape came off the shelf In 1993, Milan Bertosa was back in a studio with Israel, making a solo album, and Bertosa had an epiphany. He fished out the recording of Over the Rainbow, and it ended up on Facing Future, still the best-selling Hawaiian album of all time, thanks to this one song.
2: You know, there's been a bunch of articles written about Summer Over the Rainbow. He gets the lyrics wrong. He changes the melody. You know, if you sat there with a book and a scorecard, you could count the mistakes, or you could just listen to the song and smile. Israel Kamaka
9: Viva Ole passed away in 1997, but his music lives on in the albums and playlists of his fans. And with Somewhere Over the Rainbow, now among other audio representing Hawaii's rich history of music and sound in the Library of Congress, he'll live on for future generations. I ended my call with Barton, by asking him how the public can find all the Hawaiian music in the collection.
10: Things are accessible in person, although the library is basically closed to the public right now because of the pandemic. There are, however, a lot of uh, older recordings online at our website at lscgovernor <clears throat> slash jukebox. There's a page we call the National Jukebox, which is about 15,000 recordings uh, made from the 1890s to 1925. And includes uh, actually a lot of early Hawaiian recordings there. That's great. Just one one other thing. Okay, go ahead. And this, I don't know why, but it, it didn't occur to me until today, but on, on the record, somewhere over the rainbow, <clears throat> at the very beginning, he dedicates it to Gabby Pahanui.
9: Right, right,
10: he does. So it's like you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, and, and now they're both on the registry, so they're both sort of, you know, talking to each other in that way. Okay, this is from Gabby
0: the Library of Congress recorded sound curator Matthew Barton and HBR's Russell Subiono. They were talking about the inclusion of Israel Kamaka Vive somewhere over the rainbow into the National Recording Registry. To hear the Hawaiian music and all the other recordings preserved in the Library of Congress, click on the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And brother is happy birthday and mahalo.
6: Way up high
0: just love hawaii public radio <laughs> that is it for today up tomorrow we talk mixed messages with masking as we move into the next phase of the pandemic sound familiar well dr kathy kozak joins us for a call-in show got questions or comments about masks or vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air caller talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org connect with facebook and twitter I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.